to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast episode 19. Today we're going to be talking about card-driven war games, maybe my favorite genre of game. It includes my favorite game. Certainly your favorite, favorite publisher. Certainly, yeah, often used by my favorite publisher, GMT Games. Here with me today is Orion. Hello. And we love these kinds of games, so I figured we could dedicate an entire episode to CDGs, as they are called. Although, when I was preparing for this episode, the first task I set about for myself was, okay, let's define what it, what a card-driven war game is. And then, you know, try to figure out what games were under that label. And I went about it probably in a very backwards way. I looked through our list of games, and I just noted every single game that had conflict or was set in a war context and that included cards and I put them on a list and then I separated them into the ones that were probably CDGs and the ones that are probably not CDGs and then I tried to construct my definition by that list so I went with my gut first and then tried to formulate a definition and that did not work well it was it's a bad way to define things but it got me thinking what do we mean when we say a card driven war game and here's what I came up with. I would consider the coin series, which we'll explain more in a bit if you're not familiar with it, to be a card-driven war game. But I think, by strict definitions, it, they would not be because you're not playing with a hand of cards. The cards are from a general deck. Right. I guess if we if we were to say the strict, most classic, probably well-known example of a card-driven war game is, of course... Twilight Struggle. Right. So that's you have a hand of cards, you go back and forth playing them, it's a war game. It's strategic it's level. Strategic. Um, the cards have events. That all of those together kind of define or kind of are the boundaries of what we are calling a card-driven war game. Yeah, and I thought about that and I'm like, okay, well let's what are the what are the aspects that Twilight Struggle has that we could that we can kind of pull out. Like, okay, you have a hand of cards, so maybe you have to have a hand of cards that's part of the play. And the main driver of the game is obviously the cards themselves. And then there are there's this this concept of like operations points or action points and then events. It has to have events. And then you have to choose between the points and the events. I'm like, great, that's a really nice narrow definition. Until I realized that the very first CDG did not have you choose between events and operations points because they're on separate cards. So I think what you need to have is cards that drive all or almost all of the actions. So on your turn, you are playing a card or interacting with a card, and that kind of determines what happens. I think it should probably be strategic level, but I think just because all the examples we have are of kind of more strategy rather than tactical games... And I think the cards have to have events. There have to be card events that can be played or that get triggered. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the more broad definition, I think. Narrowly, I think you have to hang into cards and maybe a couple of other things. And then if we kind of push out in one of those directions or another, we get things like Rebellion or Triumph and Tragedy or the Coin series and, and so on. Yeah, Rebellion's an interesting one because the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, well, there's not really any way in which Rebellion isn't a card-driven war game other than the fact that there is a type of action that 
is not determined by a card moving your troops. But I think that's pretty weak as a as a thing to remove it from the list. So I think even under fairly narrow definitions, they don't have operations points or action points. I guess that's a distinguishing mark. But Rebellion is meets a lot of the criteria. More than War of the Ring, because War of the Ring has the dice. Right, you roll dice to see which actions you get. Yeah, in Rebellion, the actions you have... The action of moving, and then every other action is on a card. In Rebellion, it's really... The the leaders are the the core, like, your action points, essentially. And then you allocate those to either moving armies or actioning events. Or opposing events. That's interesting, because you can think of your operations points as actually being a somewhat stable resource that you maintain from round to round in Rebellion. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, we're going to be talking about all these kinds of games, but focusing, I think, on kind of the prime ones that you talk about, like Twilight Struggle, Here I Stand in Labyrinth, I think, are the the ones we played. And, of course, Washington's War, which is an updated version of the very first one. But if you expand even farther out, you get to games like Sekigahara, which is kind of... It doesn't have events. It's a block war game. It's a block war game, but it's driven by cards. Those cards don't have events, though, so it doesn't feel like a CDG. It's more tactical as well. It's also more tactical. Churchill's the same way. It gives you points to do things, but again, there's no events in the cards. Well, yeah, there's not really any events in the cards. You have a couple special powers. It's like 90% the number and 10% the event. Yeah. Yeah. And then the only thing the commands and colors games don't really have is that they're tactical instead of strategic because they have events and kind of primary actions. They don't have action... They kind of have action points. The points are geographic and like the number of activations you get. Yeah. But it's not too far off from something like Washington's War. Right. So it kind of depends if you're trying to de- if you're trying to create a strict um, categorization system of board games. I don't know how much we're helping you here, but we're trying to portray like what the idea of this card-driven war games, what these what common characteristics these sorts of games have. Um and then discuss some examples that we've played yeah. and enjoyed. Yeah, and I, and I mentioned trying to define the category just because it's kind of a fruitless thing to begin with, but I find it interesting. It helps focus, I think, my thoughts, and I think it's a, it's a semantical silly thing to try to say, okay, these are actual CDGs and these are not. Much like, you know, you hear about debates where like, oh, memoir isn't a real war game. Well, it's a game about war, so why do you care? But, well, it, what do you and you could play that off with like rebellion, which we said fits a lot of those criteria, but it's set in a fantasy universe. It's not a historical thing. Yeah. So does that break the rules? I don't know. You know. Well, I mean, there's uh, I've heard of a, a sci-fi coin game in the works, so okay, that's gonna blow what all gonna of our there? preconceived notions wide open. Right. So now that we've kind of talked about the different characteristics or aspects that we'd like to see or that that we come to define cdgs Uh, i want to mention some things that cdgs do well and then my idea was to kind of go chronologically through the ones we've played at least and see how they've built upon each other or reacted to each other it's interesting with the kind of a, a specific genre like this it's fun, I think, to look historically and see how the different games have influenced one another because you can trace very clear and distinct lines between the games and see how they borrowed, mm-hmm. which is almost like a literary thing, which I think is very fun. 
in, uh, in to pull into the world of board games. But let's start with what CDGs do well. And this is the list I came up with. The first thing that immediately popped into mind is that there's inherent tension with the card play because they're usually about managing that hand of cards very well. So you have the timing of the cards, how you're going to play the cards, and also considering what your opponent has. So there's tension built into, I think, two players having a hand of cards facing each other and not being able to see what the other person is holding. It's like a, you know, it's a poker kind of thing. Uh, and we see this especially, I think, in Twilight Struggle, where you have bluffing and you have, especially once you get a knowledge of the cards, you have the tension of looking for specific cards or suspecting the other person has a specific card and playing around that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think whenever you have a game with two people holding hands of cards that they can't show each other, there's an inherent tension in that. Right. You in, in, uh, insert hidden information to a struggle a war of some kind and it you know it creates tension and of course that's contrasted with what when kind of what you think of when you think of a war game which is usually where you have a giant map and everything's laid out on the map and you have every, both sides have the same kind of actions available to them and that's public information mm -hmm. something like access and allies maybe as right. a classic or example risk, or risk. Or, i guess risk you have hands of cards too a bit yeah, so but those are only to get more troops. Yeah, it's not card-driven. There's just cards involved. Yeah. That scared me for a second. I was about to rethink everything I knew and be like, man, is Risk the ultimate card-driven war game? No, it's not. It doesn't. The cards don't drive much of anything. Is Risk Legacy the ultimate card-driven war game? I don't, I've never played Risk of Legacy. Maybe okay, it is. Either. I don't know. At least then it would post-date the official, quote-unquote, uh, creation of the CDGs in 1983. The next thing I had is a lot of variety because event cards are such an important part of card-driven war games and I think necessary. You have to have events, be it historical or made up or whatever. But the events drive a lot of variety in the game and it's not they're not games in which, again, you have five different actions you can take and those are the actions you can take. It's a game in which there are hundreds of different actions you can take based on what cards you have available to you. I think that sets it apart from many different types of games. The next thing on my list is what I'm calling the inevitability of history, which sounds way too academic, but it's something that I feel when I play, especially the historical games, but even games like Rebellion and War of the Ring, is that because a lot of the action is driven by these event cards and by things that happen that are framed as historical events, it almost becomes this, what's the what's the phrase I'm looking for? Historical determinism, is that what it's called? Anyway, the idea that history inevitably progresses and marches on. You mean that given these different parties and their relative interests, history would have played out in a certain way, or not? Kind of. I'll stay away from the academic side because it gets into areas of Marxism and then Whatever. The point is that when you play a game like this, the cards are pushing you in directions because at some point you have to play the cards. So while you are determining when they're played, and maybe in some cases when there are choices internal to the card text, how they're played, they're still dictating the overall thrust of the game, which I think is an interesting feeling. It's not a sandbox, although some game, some CDGs may feel more sandboxy than others, but 
and you do have significant amounts of choice in the games, but at the same time, the events are kind of dictating the very broad general push of the game, which I think is an interesting feeling. Now, I suppose you could say that for a lot of games, like Euro games, the general push is building up an engine or building up something in order to score points, and the game incentivizes you toward that general momentum. When it feels different, it feels a lot more exciting to me and interesting when that's framed in terms of these events and event cards or history, you know, historical moments and such. I think we, we kind of talked about this a few weeks ago in the his, uh, Impossible Themes where we discussed these large-scale conflicts, trying to distill those down into a board game, and how do you capture the emotion of sending a battalion troops to, into this fray or whatever. Um, and we kind of said that the, the part that you key off of is having some sort of emotional attachment, and when you have kind of a shared history or backstory or knowledge of this uh, era of history or story or setting it you kind of fill in the gaps and of you know the strict text on the korean war in twilight struggle says roll a die and shift some influence yeah yeah right but we know that there was this big like significant conflict there between these different parties and you know, there was, depending on how much you would want to get into it, there's the whole political situation in the U.S. of the president didn't go to Congress to declare an official war. They just kind of like went over there and did some operations and then China got involved and it was this big mess, right? Or the Vietnam War. Again, it's like you get some influence. Hooray. <laughs> but and so, but it, it, it is meaningful. It feels meaningful when you play it because it's tied to the shared idea of you know that there is this thing called the Vietnam War, and you and I weren't, you know, even alive during these times, but we've read about them, we've heard about them, it's part of our kind of shared collective knowledge, and so we have a, a some sort of larger understanding of what that event means. Or even like in Star Wars, we know who these characters are, and we understand the Empire is trying to hunt down the rebels and crush their base, and, you know, we see them blow up the planet, and millions of voices cry out in terror and suddenly fall silent, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you're doing those things, it adds meaning to the actions, and it adds enjoyment, I think, and... I don't know, it just, it just, I think it fills in the gaps between the strict mechanism and the experience of playing the game. I completely agree. And it also goes back to the point we made during that podcast of things having names. Yeah. Like, even in a, you can imagine a completely fictional, even one we don't have a prior context for, like Star Wars, you can imagine a fictional universe in which you have event cards that have names and you can infer things from those names uh, and titles of fake historical events uh, that would provide more meaning rather than just doing two pulling blocks to yeah, yeah. sector A, B, X, Y. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or like pulling this lever to get these cubes. Right. Like effectively you're doing that in these games, but... There's all this other context behind it that makes it feel more impactful and more meaningful. And I think, honestly, I think this may end up becoming a big theme for us in our discussions beyond even this podcast. Because there's such a stark difference between games that do that and games that don't. Like, or even games that do it well and games that do it poorly. Right. Like I'm thinking even of games I love like Castles of Burgundy. 
you can't construct a history or a story behind that. It's just the numbers. <laughs> it's only the numbers. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we'll come to find that, you know, there's a limit to, there's like a ceiling on games like that. There's a ceiling on games that just operate within mechanisms, even if they're brilliant, like in Castles of Burgundy. Um, while we f- end up finding a lot more kind of deep fulfillment and enjoyment out of games that provide either fictional or historical some kind of context like we're talking about. That may be true, but I think there's such a broad and rich depth of collected human experience and history and knowledge bucket that we're kind of throwing all of this into that you could make a lot of games crossing all sorts of genres and you could find a... You could take the mechanics that make Castle of Burgundy unique and tie it to some sort of theme a little bit more and not detract from the game. Yeah. And that's not to say Castle of Burgundy is a bad game. You've rated it in your top 10. I think it's great. I haven't played it 300 or 400 times like you have. (laughs) But, you know, I certainly say this is clearly a good and elegant Euro game and I enjoy it, you know. For what it is. Yeah. Um, sometimes I will enjoy the experience of playing one of these war games, but from the point of view of solving a puzzle or making choices, I don't think those Euro games are inherently worse, uh, per se. Not necessarily, but maybe this is the end point of the kind of Euro-American merger in board games we've seen in the last 10, 15 years or so, is that... You know, we've already seen where we have Euro games that take the American aesthetic. You see, you know, Blood Rage, which is a drafting game. Like, that's something that comes from European games. And then piles all of this plastic and Viking rah-rah, whatever, on top of it. But I don't feel like... Like, to me, that's that's a combination that doesn't exactly succeed because... I still don't care about my Viking tribe. Like, they're just... You still feel kind of like... The game is just mechanisms, just like Castles of Burgundy. They're just way more stringy, swinging wild and, and Ameritrashy. Mm-hmm. I think the games that do this well, and maybe we'll see more of a push for this as people start to understand how to effectively make a game thematically work not towards just that kind of very crude clash of styles or general aesthetic with mechanisms, but a more refined, like we're seeing in a lot of these CDGs, story and context that's implied or explicitly stated in the way the game plays out. So do you think a game with excellent mechanisms and a cool theme is better than a game with just excellent mechanisms and a bland I'm not sure. I mean, that's what I'm proposing here. I don't know if I agree. I think... I think it I think for a game to be truly, truly excellent, at the very... The players have to be giving some kind of greater importance and momentum to it. And then certain games will make that happen more often. Like, you know, I don't... I don't love Go. I don't... I think it's fascinating as like a historical artifact. And I think it's interesting to learn the rules and play, but I can totally see how someone who's been playing go their whole life understands it on this 
epic level. Like it becomes a big epic struggle for them on the same level maybe as I find like Twilight Imperium or something like that. Just because they understand the nuances better. That's where the players kind of like they love the game because that's the context they're framing the game in in their minds. That it's this epic struggle of wills or... Uh, you know, fighting this other person very intimately. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, that can happen with any game. Like maybe there's someone out there who just falls in love with Castles of Burgundy when they play it because they're imagining the French, the French estate they're creating or whatever. And they love it on that level. But obviously there are some games that lend themselves more to making that happen among a lot of players. Maybe that's what I'm saying. Games that do that better, I think, are going to tend to be the games that we see as truly excellent. Obviously, they got to be excellent mechanically as well. I think another point for Go is that you and I can look at it and say, oh, that's an interesting game and the mechanics and whatever. But for someone maybe from China or Japan, it's been part of their culture for literally thousands of years. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we, we don't even have that context and at all in the west especially in america we don't have a cultural history that goes back you know barely 200 years yeah, yeah so we just we can't appreciate that sort of thing and so i would say that i think these different sorts of games will will appeal to different sorts of people um and so that twilight imperium is a game that we both adore and love and think is excellent and amazing and want to play all the time. But some of our friends are partially is that they're dwarfed by the scale and the time commitment, but they're not entranced by this space combat opera epic. Sure. And so to them, that could even get in the way of enjoying the game. Yeah, that's fair. It's all, you know, it's, it's one of these things where it's all on... It's, we're talking about scale here. Like, what games are going to be more successful in this regard to more people? Mm-hmm. Anyway, all of that to say, I think card-driven war games do it very well. <laughs> I think as a genre, they do that very well because everything is so contextualized within the events and the, and the cards that you, you're playing with. Right. So just, just to bring this back a bit, I think to kind of summarize, putting theme or actions or elements into your game that allow the players to kind of latch onto and create a history or create a story or uh, connect it to shared experience or something will enrich their experience of playing the game. Yes, absolutely. All right, let me find where I am in my notes here. Oh, the final thing I think they do well is that uh, they work with randomness fairly elegantly just through the card draw. I think most of them do that pretty well where there's a lot of randomness when you have a deck of cards. That's one of the primary ways we achieve randomness in board games. But generally people feel like a deck of cards is more fair than, say, rolling dice. And there's a couple elements that we could probably get in. Well, I don't think... I know enough about randomness and probability theory, but a couple traits that I would point out is that each roll of the die is separate, whereas a deck of cards, 
once you take something out of the deck, it's not there anymore. Right. And you're going to get through all the the pieces or you know all the cards in the deck yeah. if you're going through it. Yeah. And so that that makes a difference compared to just rolling a die each time and doing something based, you know, rolling a d100 and doing something based on it. Well, it be, that becomes very significant in card-driven war games, particularly with like I'd say Twilight Struggle a lot because you're counting even, the cards that are left a lot and especially the scoring. Even cards. at like a moderate level of experience like where we're at you know we've played the game probably between what 10 and 20 times somewhere in, there. in person like we're really paying attention to the deck and we're paying attention to when it gets reshuffled and all that like that's that's one of the first things you learn in twilight struggles you have to pay attention to where the scoring cards are like that's yeah. one of the first things strategically you tell someone who's getting into the game but even even in a situation where I, and I'm almost certain I've heard probably Jeff Engelstein talk about this, uh, where there have been studies where maybe the study wasn't exactly this, but you have, you know, a, a deck of six cards and there's one success or something. And then there's, uh, you know, a, you roll a six sided die and a six is a success. People think that drawing from the deck of cards is just more, less random. They feel it's less random. So I think, in Maybe it's just of, psychologically the action of grabbing one item out of a pool and then like some, it feels like you have more choice than rolling a die and seeing what comes up. Yes. I think now, now that's coming back to me, there was probably a game tech segment. I think it's the idea that you are the one doing the final bit. Mm -hmm. So you're the one revealing the card rather than a dice. You're letting go of something. Yeah. It works on that psychological level. Uh, what do CDGs not do well? I came up with two general things. The first is full player agency, because uh, you're just limited to what you have in hand. So it's different than a, again, a game like Risk or Axis and Allies or something where you have people on the board and you can generally pick any person and move them to an adjacent spot or something like that. Uh, there's a little bit more limitations with CDGs in that regard. And the other thing is that there's still, like we talked about, there's still a fairly significant luck element built into every one of these games. They're highly skilled in the end, but you're still drawing from a deck of cards as your primary thrust of the game. Yeah, and I think sometimes that has frustrated me in playing these. I know the example that springs to mind is we were playing... Uh, Falling Sky a while ago and it was such a tight game between the four of us it was this was when Bubba played with us oh right yeah it was such a tight game and based on when the winter card came up in the last six of the year you know if it had come up at one point I would have won but it didn't it was and like the next it card. was two cards later or something or the next card and and then by that time I didn't have a chance to win anymore and then at the end you know, it was we were all kind of positioned of at least several of us of if it if it came up on this card, Bubba or I could won could win. But if it was the following card, then maybe you or Ben would have won or something. Yeah, yeah. And it was just this incredibly tight but highly weighted randomness that we had no control over, and that I felt a little annoyed, and it felt like it kind of detracted from this epic like tight strategic struggle that we've been playing for hours and then the end comes down to which card is it you know yeah and some of that i don't know we we, we kind of talked about maybe if you limited 
more where it could come up or something, but I don't know, that would probably cause other issues in balancing or something. Yeah, with with the coin games in particular, you could probably limit them a bit more and be okay with it. I bet that wouldn't affect too much. I just, my, the core of my complaint is you're playing a game that is highly strategic and you've been putting tons of thought and effort into playing it for maybe hours and then at the end your chance to win is completely almost out of your hands. You can set yourself up for it, but then you can't you can't control the ending or you can't it's not it, it's out of your it's out of your agency. Yeah. I can see why that's frustrating. I don't know, it's the thing I, I always still love told the experience myself of the game, but I want to like in in um, Twilight Imperium, you it feels like you have much more agency in terms of you. It's the same long process of strategic and setting yourself up, but on that last turn, you can play better than someone else and win. Yeah, more. I feel like that's more true than in the coin games where it just. When is the end of the game? When is the the winter phase or the you know coup or the floods or the whatever it is? Yeah, it comes back, and we've discussed this before. I think off the podcast, but I always think about it, and I always this is something I that goes back to like when I was playing basketball as a kid. Like I always think, yeah, you can blame the person at the end of the game who misses the shot, but if any other people who missed shots earlier in the game had made their shot, it would effectively have the same result. I mean, obviously there's like butterfly effects stuff to consider and all that nonsense, but in a game like that, like two points is two points. It just feels a lot worse when it happens at the buzzer. And I think there are probably deep philosophical things to be made here about the nature of time or whatever. But I think as a general principle, it kind of helps I think that's partially true, but on the other hand, those couple shots at the end of the game or those cards at the end of the game or the dice last dice roll or whatever is weighted so much more highly because if it rolls one way, it's over for this person, and if it rolls the other way, it's over for that person, and you don't have time to recover from a bad outcome. Sure, but what I'm saying is... If you had gotten a lucky result earlier in the game and maybe it, that creates a situation in which the game does not come down to a dice roll at the end, that's basically the same thing. Yeah, it's probably fair, but emotionally it is Oh, emotionally it's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lose based on a random element at the end of the game. Yeah. All that to say, CDGs do not get rid of luck. There's definitely luck. I mean, we played the the one the one game of 1960 you played. Like, <laughs> just I got the luckiest I think I've ever seen. It wasn't even one like one thing. It was every every mystery bag call and every hand draw went your way. Yeah, like every single element I could think of went my way. And I've had games I've had games of Twilight Struggle where that's happened too. Where it's like, oh man, I. I got all the wrong cards in the early war. All my coups rolled a one in, at the beginning, and it just built up to something I couldn't recover from. Mm-hmm. You know, it happens. That's that's part of these games in particular. And, it, and it's interesting. There's You think of 
heavier games like these war games we're talking about would be less luck intensive because you think of big heavy games that dedicated people play as less luck intensive but in this particular genre they're often not like i'm thinking of labyrinth which is one of the most like there are die roll, dice rolls in that game for everything you do yep. and it's something eventually i'm going to write about is that I think it's fascinating that the war game genre seems to be more about the experience of just watching it play out rather than being super heavy deterministic strategy like we find in the Eurocamp. Yeah, a lot of the war games are more about simulating that war or that situation or that conflict rather than a super elegant, um, you know, machine or system in a Euro game. Yeah. So they're more about the experience of, to me, at least, and I'd love to talk to like a war game designer or someone who works at GMT about this to see if it's actually true that this is how people who design these games think. But it feels like it's more, it's focused more on making the whole experience enjoyable rather than making it about the final outcome. It's and something that, to think that, about. That's fair. I'm just really competitive and hate to lose. So. Oh, I know that. We all, we all know this, Ryan. We all know this. All right. Any more comments on that? Because I, I, the next we thing We should is, get into some games. Yeah, let's get into some specific games because I think this will be really fun. So I wrote out the main the main games, basically, or the, the ones that are, that are definitely card-driven war games by a narrow definition chronologically, and then we'll get into more other stuff like the coin games. Uh, so the the first one, even though Washington's War, uh, even though technically that specific game was published in 2010, it is an, a basically reprinting, updating, and I think there weren't a ton of mechanical changes. Uh, but anyway, it's, a, it's an update of We the People from 1993, which is, I think, pretty much unanimously considered the first card-driven war game. So we'll start there. We've only played it once. I think... Partially because we were kind of disappointed in it. I think it would get better with further plays, but it was a little frustrating in how swinging some of the cards were. Yeah. And just some of the limitations in how you were able to move troops in the events you had to play. And the other weird thing was that game, if I remember correctly, it separated events and ops points. Yeah. So... You had cards that were ops points, and you had different cards that were events. Yeah, it was very much like when you discover a new band that you like, and you go back to their first EP, and you're like, oh, yeah, I can definitely see, you know, the feeling of the band, but they got way better (laughs) Uh, since then. That's kind of what it felt like to me with Washington's War, because having the ops and the event on the same card and having you choose between them is just, I think, just strictly better as a system. It's just better. It provides a more interesting choice with every card. Um, so that's one of the things that, that really stands out as, as something that has been improved on since We the People. The really significant events, those were mandatory, right? Like the Declaration of Independence event? Or there's like a timer where they have to come out by a certain point? You, that, that, the, the timer was something in Here I Stand. Um, I think... The other ones were were mandatory events in the same way that like scoring cards are mandatory, that you had okay, to, yeah. you had to play them and they had they had to be played for the event that in round. the in the round that you drew. Yeah. 
So we'll see that later. I felt like they weren't implemented particularly well in that game. I think especially compared to Here I Stand. I think Here I Stand does the mandatory event thing a lot better. And I'll explain why when we get to that game. There were a bunch of repeats of cards, right? There were multiple copies of a lot of cards in, in Washington's War, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. In Washington's War, there were less... It wasn't specific events, like the Boston Tea Party or something. Like, it wasn't an event for that which added some influence in this region based on or around Boston or something. Right. It was more like spring offensive and you move three armies. Yeah. Or there were there were some that were tied to a person or something, but that was the minority of them. And most of them were either just straight ops cards or there were these campaign cards that let you move a couple armies. Um, and then there were some kind of generic events that did something, and I think there were multiple copies of those. Yeah, and again, it's one of those situations where I think the state of card-driven war games has just improved since then. Like, having specific events, again, provides more context, it grounds the game more, and makes things more interesting kind of in the replaying of history in your head. Rather than with Washington's War, where you have the more generalized events, you feel that, okay, They're giving us actions, it's just randomized. Rather than, oh, we're playing out history in this weird alternate way. Yeah, that could be fair. Yeah, yeah. There there was definitely less connection to what was going on, and it was more just the numbers and playing the mechanics. Right, yeah, you you felt the mechanisms more than the... Yeah, more than the theme, really. Um, Another thing on there was that... uh, a significant part of the game is still dudes on a map, which we'll see completely eradicated with Twilight Struggle. Although it's not obviously not gone. It's a from map, the but genre. It's, it's more abstracted. Yeah, yeah, it becomes a lot more abstracted. Well, not in all of them, but in not Twilight Struggle, it's abstracted. In Twilight Here Struggle, is, Here I Stand has and armies on the map, and religion and stuff. Lots of tokens all over the map. Yeah, the coin games and Colonial Twilight all have armies and tokens and stuff that you're moving around. Rebellion's kind of an interesting play on that because your generals and your military leaders are kind of removed from the geography. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Washington's war, the geography was very significant, especially up in, uh, in New England, Boston area. Yeah. Where, you know, a lot of the big, big battles were pretty much going to take place in that game. And retreating to winter's quarters and getting routed with nowhere to retreat. And that was very significant. Yeah. So, I don't know, I, I would like to play Washington's War again, but it, it was, it did feel like kind of a rough draft of what we see later on in this in this style of game. Mm-hmm. Then we jump to 2005, is that Twilight Struggle? Yeah, yeah. 2005. That's nuts. And this the game's is, 12 years old. This is, in some ways, I think we're being a little unfair to Washington's War, because we're taking... The first, like, genre-defining game and comparing it to our favorite game of all time. Well, we're also jumping through 12 years of And we're jumping through 12 years of design. And and there's a lot of games that we haven't played that were before Twilight Struggle, so... Right. We are being unfair. So, to take the the band (laughs) analogy, it's like, you know, their first EP compared it to their double platinum record, you know? Correct. Yes, that, that, that is something that should be said. 
I, I was trying to look up what the significant CDGs were between them. Hannibal, uh, Rome versus Carthage is one of them that was that was very significant. I want to play that I one really just because play. of the setting. <laughs> oh, it sounds awesome. And I, I know the reprint has happened, I believe. It was okay. on Kickstarter a few months ago. Oh, was it? It might be in that in-between period, but the, they did make a new version. Okay. Uh, we should it's on my wish list. Yeah, I, I really want to play it. But anyway, then we reach the pinnacle probably of the genre in Twilight Struggle. But let's look at specifically what it does well. So it has it has the operations and the events on on every card. They're all they all have operations value and an event on them, so they're not separate like in Washington's War, and you have to choose between them. Mm-hmm. The crowning achievement has to be playing your opponent's events. Yeah. I mean that That creates so much tension and when you, you draw a hand of cards and you look at and you're like, okay, I have three unplayable events. How am I going to deal with this hand? Right. You know, if I'm the U.S., I, I drew decolonization, destalinization, and something else that sucks. Who has crisis or something? Yeah, yeah. You're just like, well, I'm going to hold one and I'm going to space the other or well, space one. Specifically, you're going to space destalinization. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to play one of them and you're probably going to choose Suez Crisis in that case, even probably, though it sucks. yeah. Oh man, but if you have D stall and D call in your hand, that's rough actually. I don't know which one you space in that situation. That's too specific. Sorry. The, the point is that it creates this these just hard decisions and these just it's it's so tension and you're just struggling to find plays and so much of it feels like this Cold War standoff between you and the other superpower and you're you just you're neither of you is actually making gains. Yeah, you you feel like you're just kind of staying in the you're same just spot in to different ways. N- not lose better than the other person and c- end up ahead. Yeah, and, and when I was preparing this, I was thinking, man, Twilight Struggle predates all of the other games we have. Why don't the other games do that? And I'm like, oh, well, it's necessitated by the theme. Yeah. It wouldn't work as well in a game with a different theme. It works perfectly in Twilight Struggle because of the standoffish nature of the Cold War mm-hmm. and the theme. And you have like the DEFCON track, which you're keeping on the brink. And it right. all and, ties and together to that same And it feeling. lasted for 50 years or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's just a scope and uh, yeah, and the tension. It just, it's, it's incredible. The other thing I think that that's very notable in Twilight Struggle is the way scoring's handled, because the scoring is just another card in the deck, and therefore it's part of the way you manage your hand of cards is right. managing when to play scoring. Because when you draw a scoring card, you have to play it that round. Yep. And you and and that's where we get to what we talked about earlier, where part of the primary strategy in Twilight Struggle is just knowing which scoring cards are still left in the deck and have the potential to be coming up. And then you balance that with, uh, you know, trying to maintain control or gain control of those reasons, regions while looking at the very long term and trying to shore up other regions that you're not going to come up farther ahead in the future. And we don't see that in, in really any of the other CDG games, I don't think. That might be another thing necessitated by the by the theme because it's a, a a much longer period of history being played out. It sort of simulates the idea that 
we really don't know what regions of the world are going to be significant like 10 years from now, but we know generally which ones are going to be significant now. And it, I guess it, it plays out over a longer period of history that way because regions' significance ebbs and flows as you play. A change we see from Washington's War is that you have just pure area control instead of armies on the board. Again, a thematic thing there. And you get key strategic meat out of shuffling the deck, which I don't think was as significant in Washington's War, it seemed. That's probably more because the events were less memorable. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Okay. You, you have... Because of the way Twilight Struggle, you know, has all these very significant events, keeping track of which cards are in and out is, is more important compared to Washington's War, where you have a lot of this, you're going to see a lot of the same type of events and they're much more generalized. So I think those are the highlights that we get out of Twilight Struggle that kind of set it apart. And again, it, 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 we've, we talked about this game a lot because it's our favorite game. It's just a perfect marriage of the theme and the mechanics in this situation. It just came together perfectly, and it suits the card-driven war game shell, I guess, mechanical shell, ideally. And we're both interested in it. I'm not that interested in the Cold War. Like, as a historical period, I don't know, take it or leave it. I don't have any I think particular I, I... attachment to it enjoy history and historical wars and conflicts more than you do oh certainly yeah i'm more about history of ideas rather than you know fighting and stabbing and all that (laughs) i guess it's shooting in the cold war but or not shooting yeah Uh, almost shooting a lot (laughs) all right let's jump up one year to here i stand which may be the other shining achievement although we've only played it once so far but I think it has the potential, man, right after each other, 2005 Twilight Struggle, 2006, Here I Stand. And this one this gets game, a lot of uniqueness just by the fact that it's not a two-player game. Yeah. There's six different factions, and I think that changes how it interacts with the card-driven, again, mechanical shell in very interesting ways. So it has the same thing. Ops and events are on the same, are, are on cards. They're not separated. Uh, you you have the return of mandatory events in Here I Stand, which I think work a lot better here because you have the, the the diplomacy and the diplomatic nature of the game that can balance things out. It's the same kind of thing we talk about when I, like when I've written about catch up mechanisms in games. When you have multiplayer combat games where there's interaction. That's kind of just a built-in catch-up mechanism. So, in Here I Stand, for instance, in the game we played, I got my one of my mandatory events in the first round, and that ended up being a huge boon for, can't remember the name of the faction, the Ottomans, right? Oh, your piracy thing? Yeah, the piracy thing. No. Like, that could have come up in round five. It was forced to come up by round two or three. Was it? Okay. Anyway, but getting it in round one felt very, very significant, because that's you have to have that out before you can gain access to one of your primary ways of scoring points as the Ottomans. Because there's this kind of self-balancing multiplayer thing going on, here I stand, I think, can get away with a lot more stuff like that. It also gets away with, with runaway leader stuff, like the fact that the more territory you control, the more cards you draw at the beginning of each round. Because, again, it has the diplomacy aspect to it, which is completely fascinating to me. Right, that's the fundamental difference between... A two-player game where it's 
one versus one, you versus the other person. Zero sum. Zero sum yeah. sort of game versus a group where you get these kind of group mechanics going on. And the, you know, the next, you know, you go up to three player and then it's this different, this tug of war and generally the weaker two will team up on the top person and then one of them will become the new top person and then the alliances are constantly rotating. Right. In a six player, it's just more convoluted and you can have longer term relationships with another player and you can you can keep your interests aligned for longer <laughs> because you're not immediately getting ahead of them or yeah. they're getting ahead of you necessarily. Yeah, and the other thing that this allows is extremely asymmetrical factions. I don't I think you could do that in two players, but it, it it's allow- a lot more difficult. Right. It's it's hard to it can be very difficult to balance those sorts of asymmetries. Which we've discussed in things like Rebellion or War of the Ring, <laughs> being right. asymmetrical two-player factions and how we think they're balanced and things like that. All of that to say that Here I Stand does a lot of really cool and interesting things that I think it can only do successfully because of the diplomatic nature of it. And what it does then is it really has that sense of like major history is happening because you have these events that have to happen and because you can have like, you know, one player only concerned about just like blowing up Protestantism in Germany and another player is really trying to get pregnant and a third player just like wants to establish colonies in the new world and everyone's doing their kind of own separate thing but at tension with each other and they have different incentives and different priorities and different strengths and weaknesses and Mm -hmm. all of that good stuff uh, just within the plane of events and the plane of operations points. And that's what excites me so much about Here I Stand is that it really captures the epic scale, even I think better than Twilight Struggle because there are more players at the board, there are more interests, there's more interpersonal intrigue. A lot of the uh, reason we on. like Twilight Imperium is because it's the six of you tra- vying for control of the galaxy, not one versus one. <laughs> right. And that's something that a multiplayer game can do really well. But again, because everything's grounded within those event cards and within actual historical events, it, to me, I, I, at least, it felt even more weighty and more involving, I guess. Yeah. Another, uh, to go back to the, um, the mandatory events, the, it creates this kind of sense of progression through the game. And so you've got like the, uh, the religious debates going on and most rounds some new debaters come out and some figures that you, you know, know from history like Calvin or Zwingli or Luther, or whatever, they come out at different points in the game and they kind of mark that you've progressed in history. Yeah. Or uh, some of the events are required to happen, like certain wars kicking off. And then you've got the whole Henry VIII getting, going through his seven, six, five wives, whatever. However many times he was married and remarried trying to get a, to get a son and an heir. And a lot of those are mandatory so that, well, we should mention, the, the, the other unique thing about Here I Stand is that you reshuffle the entire deck every round. And oh, then you, I forgot about you that. You deal out a new hand to everyone. And then part of the faction's asymmetry is that you have two core card, one to two core cards for your faction mm, that yeah. are always in your hand and you have to play. 
and then you get a hand of cards based on how many key cities you control. Yeah, yeah. And then if you if no one has played that mandatory event at the end of round two, then it just happens. Yeah. And kicks off, you know, whatever. Yeah, and that kind of stuff and those kind of little fiddly bits does make the game more complex. But I think the inevitability of it, I think, is what really excites me because it's back to my general point about the inevitability of history. Like, when you know that something is looming on the future, like, that's how actual world leaders have to think about. They have to know that certain tensions or certain situations have been building up and they, they're going to have, like, something's going to spring forth or whatever or, or trigger or right. something like, the, like that. Like, before, it has to happen. Before that World War One, you... everyone could see these alliances and oh, yeah. things being drawn up and everyone's like, okay, something's going to happen. What's going to kick it off? And it's some random Duke of Serbia being assassinated by some terrorists. And then, you know, this... this country jumps in and then the other country jumps in on the other side and back and forth and suddenly we get a world war. You see the same thing with the inevitability of history organically in games like Twilight Imperium to bring that up again, but I think it's almost even more fun when it's really disparate events like the emergence of the Barbary pirates and Henry VIII finally having an heir that he doesn't want to murder or you know all the different things that come out in Here I Stand because it's it feels more historical. And because well, <laughs> you know that it's... Those are things that actually happened. Oh, hush. <laughs> the point is, because they're inevitable, it feels more like you're making decisions from the perspective of how people in real life actually make decisions. Because okay. certain things are always looming on the horizon and obviously in real life you don't know for certain that something's going to happen you can know pretty much for sure that something's going to happen and plan around those kinds of inevitabilities or have your theories about what's you know what countries are going to get mad at each other or whatever anyway i think here i stand's brilliant it's i i want to play it again desperately yeah. so we played it once with three and it was great in that although the diplomacy was pretty much non-existent we didn't do a lot of it. I, I think we could have we could have done a bit, more, a bit more, but it was pretty much we're all doing our own thing, and then I got a little too far ahead, and Mark and Jeff teamed up and tried to stop me, and were unable to. Couldn't. France was France held on to its territory pretty well, but France is in a tough position in that game. They're like immediately surrounded by everyone. Yeah, they need to make friends. All right, the next one chronologically, which actually surprises me a bit. I didn't realize. I thought it was newer for some reason. Is 1960 the making of the president? I don't have a ton to say about this, and we'll try not to rant about the one game Orion played of it. What I will say is that it changes up, and it's by the same, one of the same designers as Twilight Struggle. It's, it's kind of a pseudo, it's like a spiritual sequel, even though there's an actual sequel to Twilight Struggle that I haven't gotten to play yet, but it's on pre-order. Anyway, the big changes I see is that You don't have to play your opponent's events, but there's a currency in the game where the opponent can, that the opponent can spend to get them to trigger, which is, it's just like a weaker version of that innovation in Twilight Struggle, which I guess makes sense thematically, but it didn't feel as compelling to me from a gameplay perspective. I think that was also somewhat balancing in, or uh, for balance purposes, so that every opponent's event didn't fire, but they could choose to fire some of them. 
So you had to take into account, but you weren't always going to suffer the downside. Yeah, the other thing is just by trying to make it a bit simpler than Twilight Struggle, it abstracts a lot more. And so you have like a significant portion of the game is over the issue track, which is just a like a three-part track. Like it, it's like as abstracted yeah. as it can be. But that's like a third of the game, I think, in terms of focus, or it can be that much. It's, it's mm-hmm. very significant. And the rest of it, I felt like the the events weren't as exciting or varied. It was all almost entirely variations on place some cubes here. And you didn't have the geographical restrictions you had in Twilight Struggle. So there was a lot more back and forth. Of, in some ways you did. Well, okay. A little bit. Not as... You didn't have, like, choke points and stuff, like, in Twilight Struggle. I don't know. I thought it felt like you were on a campaign, and you were, like, tug-of-war back on forth on these key states, and you would travel around, try to, like, lock down one region, and then spend the time to get over to the Midwest, and then over to the South or the West, and then, you know, campaign around there for a while. Yeah. And uh, kind of shore up those states, and then oh, they tore down Massachusetts, and they're ahead in the polls, and you got to get back up there because that's you know a ton of votes or something. So, well, yeah. In that sense, I liked the theme and the experience of trying to move around and play, you know, place your little influence cubes. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you get out of 1960s because it follows the same electoral system that is in real life. Certain states are substantially more important than others. Yeah. Like in Twilight Struggle, you have your uh, battleground states and your non-battlegrounds, or battleground countries and non-battleground countries. And the battleground countries are more significant, but it's just the two things. But like you also have the regions are worth different points allocations. Regions are worth slightly different points, so you have some variation there, but nothing compared to 1960. Like. Right. New York is 45 points. And half of the West States And Wyoming's three. three. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, like, that's a massive difference. So you end up, just because it's being historically accurate and thematic, you end up with a handful of states really being the key states, the swing states, right? Right. Just like in real life, and you spend all your time there. Which is true to real life, and it really simulates well why politicians don't ever go to Wyoming, but... Sorry, Wyoming. I, I don't actually... I'm not going to apologize to Wyoming. Wyoming is like the ugliest state I've ever been to. But from a gameplay perspective, I don't think it's as successful because it's a lot more like pure tug of war of like, I place cubes there and you do, then you take them away. And then I place more cubes there and then you take them away. And the events don't allow as much crazy swinginess. There's a couple of events that have that potential, but not a, not a lot of them. But I still think it's a fun game. Uh, it's just not quite as as good as its predecessor. There's and definitely more randomness. <laughs> and yeah, more randomness, but not as much as the next one on our list, which so is I believe again. Let's see, nineteen sixty was two thousand seven, so one year after here I stand. Labyrinth in twenty ten, which again is a card driven war game, but interestingly is from. Uh, Volko, who went on to design the coin game. So it's it kind of sits in feeling almost halfway between those two subgenres. It's more of a card-driven game. It's more of a card-driven game, but you start to you, you see little things in Labyrinth that you'll see flushed out a lot better in the coin games, I feel like. Key points from Labyrinth is that 
it returns back to the Twilight Struggle system of your opponent's events will happen when you play them. The difference is that there are way more conditional events in Labyrinth than in, I think, any of the other games we're going to be talking about, mm -hmm. where certain conditions have to be met for the event to happen. So you end up looking like, oh, I got a handful of my opponent's events, but you know, one out of the six even have the potential of happening. Yeah. The other main difference is that going back to deck shuffling and managing the deck, that's actually how you determine what length of game you're going to play with. You can play the short game, which is just one time through the deck. The tournament mode, I think, is two times through, and the full game is three times through. Mm -hmm. So I think the short game is just a no-go because you want to see events return that you get the conditions for later on in the game. You want to at least go through the deck twice to get a good... to get some strategy out of that, uh, of preparing for big certain conditional events that you want to see happening. And I think that's where the depth will come from when we play Labyrinth more. Definitely knowing the deck more would make a big difference in how you make decisions. I remember the first time we played, I was like, well, I don't want to know what that is, so I'm just going to play this for ops. And I just did that on everything because yeah. a lot of them are like, prevent this event or improve this event or enable this event. And I was like, well... I don't recognize any of these names. I don't know, even know if we played them already. Yeah. So I'm just going to take the ops. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. that detracted some from the first play, but that's more because I'm not as familiar with the events of the War on Terror as I am with the more well-known events in the Cold War, like the Korean yeah. War or the Vietnam. Like, those are just things you know. Yeah, yeah. Um... Whereas this was more focused on smaller scale things and events sure. and groups and people. Uh, and so at least it wasn't in my kind of realm of knowledge as well. Yeah. So I think Labyrinth has the potential for, you know, a lot more of the depth that we see in Twilight Struggle with, with knowing the cards better that we don't get out of uh, like 1960 or uh, Washington's mm -hmm. War. But on the other hand, it has way more luck than any of the games we're going to be talking about, particularly if you're playing on the side of the jihadists because you have to roll dice to even get things to happen. Right. You play ops to move that many units, and then you roll a dice for each unit to see if they succeed in doing that. And it's at best a 50-50. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of a bummer for me. I think of the games we're talking about, this one's probably my least favorite based on a couple plays. But I'm still I'm still excited to play it more, particularly to understand the events a bit better, because I think there's there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, and there's an expansion that we have not. That's true. We haven't yet. played the expansion yet. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Mm -hmm. Next on the list, we have Star Wars Rebellion, and the and interesting... this is a game that I love way more than Mark. Although he, I think he might I be like, coming around. I like it a lot. I put it in my top fifty. You put it at like forty one. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Whatever. Hush. Right. Star, I, I really like Star Wars Rebellion, everyone. Okay. I like right. it way more than Blood Rage, that's for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think when we're looking at this from the perspective of card-driven war games, Rebellion has, does something very, very interesting. And that is, before each round, you lay down what cards you want to play from your hand of cards, 
and you assign leaders to them. The rebellion does that first, and then the empire, mm-hmm. and and then you go back and forth, and then you go back and forth one. resolving them. So you don't have to play your whole hand or most of your hand. You can play as many as you want. You don't even have to play the ones that you set aside to play, but you do have to set them aside, and you have to use your leaders with them who have different skills and certain cards and events require different types of skills. So particularly from the Empire's perspective, you're staring at what the Rebellion has put out and trying to guess at what they're going to be trying to do and what you should set aside because you can then oppose their attempts at certain types of events and things like that. So it adds another layer to the bluffing that we see in something, again, going back to Twilight Struggle, where there's a bit of bluffing there of, oh, do they or do they not have a particular scoring card in hand? But in Rebellion, it adds the whole noon layer of what is their strategy based on what I see with their leader selection in that in that beginning phase of each round. And I find that very intriguing. In fact, I think that's, that is the best part of Rebellion, I think, is that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Rebellion also has separate event decks, which is something you don't see in a more traditional card-driven war game. So each side has their own events. So you don't have to worry about playing an event for your opponent. Everything's for your side. And just by the nature of it being a hide-and-seek game, you have a lot more hidden information. But I think something that would be interesting to see in other games is, th- is this leader selection process. I think it has a lot of potential and creates a really interesting dynamic. And then the other interesting part comes in once you, you have to go through like two rounds of deciding what you're going to do for the planning out the round, because first you look at your hand and like, all right, which missions do I want to do? And then how am I going to allocate my leaders to that? And then you have to, based on what the other person has laid out in terms of face down, based on which leader they're assigning to a face down mission. You have to try to guess, like like you said, and then you resolve things in what you hope is the best order. Yeah. Um, well, it, and what it does is it, it creates a mechanism for something you already do in a game like Labyrinth or Twilight Struggle, which is you get your hand of cards and you immediately start figuring out in what order am I going to do these and how do I want to resolve these events or time these things. And it creates a little mini game off of that where... Mm-hmm. You're determining which cards you're going to be playing. And again, another layer of choice and decision making and bluffing and, and interaction with the other player. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see a, a, a historical card driven game to to do something similar. I think it'd be really fascinating. Yeah, that would be cool. And we should, you, you touched on, you mentioned this, but this is a highly asymmetric two player war game. Yeah. And it seems to be fairly well balanced from from what we've seen. You might disagree a little bit, but... I might disagree a little bit. It's balanced in favor of you, I mean, because you're way better at it than I am. And I know I've seen some stats based on limited amounts of data on BGG that it's balanced, but man, I have a hard time winning that game as the um, as the Empire. Yeah, it's, it's a game that, because of the asymmetry, one person can get ahead in their understanding of a side and really dominate the other player. when the other side doesn't know how to counter that. Yeah. And so there are some strategies, like the Empire, as the Empire, you can just eschew all events and just try to spread your armies out as fast as possible and find the base. Yeah. Like, in you know, as as fast as you can, like, take all the production and just find the base. And that will work 
until the rebel player understands what you're doing and launches these their uprisings and their hidden strikes on Coruscant and things like that to really rapidly score a bunch of objectives and bring down the game timer. Right, right. And then when the when the rebel player is doing that, the empire can go to more of a subjugation game and playing the events to set themselves up and and setting up these big fleets and capturing leaders and things like that um, and kind of, you know, go back the other way and some of it you will play better once you know what the other faction is capable of, which is, you know, true of all these sorts of games. And, you know, knowing the decks just is a huge advantage. Right. Um, yeah. It's similar in Twilight Struggle in that regard in that yeah. a more experienced player is going to win just because they have more knowledge. Just, yeah, knowing the deck is a huge advantage. So that's the kind of primary CDGs that we have played, we've talked and compared a bit with the coin games, but let's talk about those specifically. So the main difference in the coin games is just the way the cards are handled. So there are events in coin games and players have the choice to trigger them, but it's not with a hand of cards, rather it's a public deck. That's the primary difference. And in all of them except for Colonial Twilight, you see the event that is active that round and you see the one that's coming up next. Something you don't see in any of the other games is that the cards dictate the turn order, which I find fascinating. Yeah, I think that's a really cool part of the game. And that's a really interesting part of coin games. And the other thing is that whoever is first in turn order, or whoever's turn it is at the beginning of the round, makes a choice that influences the options of what the second of the four, or the, what the second player can do. Right. So if they play the event, the second player can play a full action or yeah. something, and the first player plays a limited, they only play an action, no special, then the second player can only do a limb up, basically. Right. And then in the four-player coin games, only two players are going to go any given turn. Right. So usually you bounce back and forth between two sets of players. Until but... someone sees ahead a card and be like, well, I cannot give up i'm willing to pass this action in in order to get an action on the next card yeah so in the long run i'm giving up an action in the game because this next event would be so crippling to me if i let it come up come off yeah and it's just such a fun dynamic in the in those games yeah. of working around the very limited knowledge of what those two cards are and trying to find the best way to do what you want to do, but also limit what your opponents are going to do. And that's aided by the fact that the coin games are all very asymmetrical and kind of team versus team a bit. There are more natural allies in the coin games than... Than a strict free-for-all. Than a strict, yeah, yeah. than a free-for-all type of, of, of game, which creates, and then again, another layer of interesting interpersonal dynamics... Which I think Here I Stand also has that. Some factions will be more likely to ally because their interests are less opposed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And we, we, when in the three-player version, you played the two factions that kind of went together the most. But in a six-player game, you could completely buck history and just have the Habsburgs declare war on the Pope and just take them over for all their rich land or something. Yeah. Which would be interesting. We just got to play a six-player game of Here I Stand. That's the moral of this podcast. Anyways, coin games. Anyway, yeah. We we also like coin games. We we, we do like the coin games. And I should point out that the ones we played are Fire in the Lake and Falling Sky. 
and Colonial Twilight, the two-player one, which changes things up a bit, but has a lot of the same general principles. But I'm really talking about the four-player ones, Falling the, Fire in the Lake and Falling Sky. They have this different way of dealing with the event cards. They don't have operations points, but they do have the distinction between a limited operation, a full operation, and an operation of special action, which are kind of three different strengths of actions that you can do, mm-hmm. uh, then, which I guess is the analog for the different operations values. They're somewhat similar. Yeah, but they tend to be, uh, instead of moving you know, four spaces with four ops or moving four things, it's like do something one spot, do a basic thing everywhere, or do a basic thing everywhere and a super thing. <laughs> yeah, and a bonus action on top so, of it. So it, it's a little... It, I, I see what you're saying, but yeah. it is, it's not quite the same. different, but somewhat similar. The biggest similarity I see in coin games is that there's so much interaction with limiting what your opponent does. Again, we see this in Twilight Struggle, where you're trying to limit the power of your opponent's operation... Or your opponent's events, rather. In coin games, you're trying to, in the same kind of way get as much tempo and as much effect out of your actions and your choices, but simultaneously being very careful not to give your opponents too much. Right. So while it can be very tempting to take the event, a Sometimes lot of the times it's, it's not worth it, yeah. it because you're giving you know the next player in line a, a full operations and a, and a bonus. Yeah. That event really has to be impactful for yeah. to, to be worth taking, which makes for a lot of interesting decisions, and I think a lot of points, decision points where people will make mistakes. Yes, and I think that's the most. I mean, that and the asymmetry of it. Right, and the, is the, most the, the other thing with part. that balancing is that you're not trying to hold down the one person in Twilight Struggle. You're trying to. <sighs> get yourself ahead of everyone else without bringing down a coalition on yourself. Right, right. Which is, oh, it's such a cool, such a cool dynamic we really don't see. Like, games like Archipelago kind of have the semi-co-op thing where you have to work together every once in a while. But it's a lot more crude there, especially in Fire of the Lake. It's so subtle and so interesting. So (laughs) passive-aggressive. And extremely passive-aggressive if you're uh, the U.S. or South Korea but, or excuse me, South Vietnam. <laughs> it reminds me of that stupid quiz where people couldn't find where South Korea was. Oh, be quiet. <laughs> I know where South Korea is. I know. To be fair, the, on the other side, the North Vietnamese can just like convert the Viet Cong. Um, <laughs> That's right. But we I didn't see that. that happen as much because yeah. the US and the South Vietnamese, but because they share resources, there's a lot more tension every action. Yeah, yeah. That relationship in particular is one of the most fascinating faction relationships. Maybe the most fascinating faction relationship I've seen in any game ever. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. So those are kind of the things that are unique to the coin games. What's similar about them uh, compared to the more uh, traditional card-driven games is, again, that inevitability, inevitability of history where you see it even more starkly in the coin games because you're just flipping over a new card what's going to happen what's going to happen mm-hmm. you know not all the events trigger or even a, a substantial number of them are going to trigger throughout the game but you see the potential and you see you know what could be on the horizon you have to try to work around that which is similar to you know something like here i stand yeah another interesting thing in the coin games is 
they tend to be divided up into years uh, in the way that other games you'll have a hand of cards and that represents the round or the year or the period or whatever and in this every 15 or so cards depending on the deck you flip over a a reset card yeah. and you check for victory so you can't you can be winning the game for most of the year and then drop out at the end and not win at the end because you have to be winning at the end of the year when right. that winter or coup or you know whatever card is flipped over which uh, creates the the interesting tension with that and also the potential frustration we right. talked about earlier yeah so there's a lot of psychological <laughs> psychological strategy of positioning yourself to not appear threatening but being able to capitalize and take one big action and surge into the lead at the right time yeah uh so to wrap up here i kind of want to go over some general principles of card-driven war games. And I came up with three general principles that I guess you could draw from this discussion. The first one is elegance. Because you have so many decisions and considerations packed into a single card that we see so well in these kinds of games, there's a there's elegance to it. There's an elegance to having everything or a lot of consideration just contained within that one card. And the games I think that do it best are obviously Twilight Struggle, because you have to decide between playing the event, playing the ops, you have to manage your opponent's events, you have to manage how you're timing things in, in the way you play your cards and based on what your opponent cards may have, you have to manage DEFCON. Here I Stand does it very well, where you have to manage the diplomacy of what you're going to do with the cards. And we didn't get a lot into this a lot with our three-player game, but you can offer to like play someone else's event because there are very faction-aligned events in Here I Stand as a concession in, in diplomatic talks, I which think I think you, is has a ton of interesting potential You can also there. even give them a random card from your hand. Oh, I forgot I about think. that. That too. Or you can share armies or give like rent out your armies as mercs or something. So there's so much potential then in just a single important event or a single important card. Right. And um, you have to make at least five to eight of those decisions, like complex de decisions, every round. Right. And to play well, you have to have an overarching strategy for the whole round that includes all of your cards. And then you have to adjust that as you go based on what you see other people doing. And that, that strategy in the round has to play into your strategy for the whole game. Yeah. Um, so there's so many... T you have the long view. You have the medium-long view. You have the medium-short view of yeah. like the round. And then you have the, the short view of this card. What am I going to do with this card? Yeah. And it's just... I mean, it's the definition of elegance. It's, it's a lot of things packed into something very simple. Yeah. Which is a number and an event. And here I stand, you also have the dynamic between trying to push your territory control and then trying to push your victory points, which often are not necessarily the same thing, because as you control more territory, you get more cards each round, which Territory is does give you more victory points, but it's usually not the most it's efficient way to get victory points. Yeah, it's not going to be... Also, it's not... A, you have to also do your secondary. Every yeah. faction gets points from territory, and then they also get points from some other unique mechanism. Yes, like building chateaus, if you're the French. Or pirating the Mediterranean. Or being pirates, yes. 
So those, I think, are the best examples of that kind of elegance with the card play. The worst example, I think, is Washington's War just because the events and the operations are on separate cards. So you don't have the decision of which one to play because it's just the timing that you're deciding. Right. You're still managing a hand of things, but not on every card. Yeah. The second uh, general takeaway is interaction because, again, the inherent intrigue created by you having a hidden hand of cards and your opponent having a hidden hand of cards that only works when the cards are significant to what you're doing it doesn't work in a situation where it feels like a multiplayer solitaire kind of thing or there's not a lot of interaction there but when it works well it works really well right in something like spades you really only care about where like the ace of each suit is or and where the trump is but in this you need to know where all the significant cards are. And I think in the better examples of these, most of the cards are significant in one way or another. Yeah. An example of a game I don't think does this particularly as well as the others would be 1960, which I mentioned before. The The, the events are generalized. It's all variations kind of on the same thing, which is just adding or taking away cubes. It, because it costs more to move from region to region. Once you're in a region, you're usually going to stay there a while. There's not as much importance in specifically what your opponent does because you kind of generally know what they're going to do. There's still a lot of intrigue there and a lot of, you know, a lot of back and forth and interesting play. It's just not as good as as some of the other games. And then Rebellion does it very well, as we talked about, with the way you, you allocate leaders because it gives you that little bit of information and because the events can be so tremendously significant, like capturing a rebel leader is so significant. And as the rebel side throughout the whole game, you know that's a potential, you know it can be devastating, and you're trying to work around it the whole game. That That's a really fun part of Rebellion. Right, and that, especially in Rebellion, when you set things out ahead of time, but the ability to bluff different actions is becomes a really interesting like subplot to the strategy of playing out your turn. Yeah, yeah. And then the final principle is limitations. I think this is a really interesting part of design because you often think the better games are the ones that give lots of different choices. And we talk about how choice is really good in games, and it is. But I think it can be improved or made interesting when you have defined limitations around those choices. And card-driven games do that so fascinatingly. And similar to uh, games like the Command and Colors games, where you're trying to, you know, like Memoir 44, Command and Colors Ancients, which are the ones we've played, where you have a hand of cards, you're limited to that hand of cards, and that's significant, because if you push a lot on one side of the board, you're going to run out of the cards that allow you to do that, so you could get stranded out there, so you have to manage your cards and work around those limitations. Uh, in Twilight Struggle, each hand of cards is an entirely new situation, a new crisis as a whole that you have to work around and deal with. Mm-hmm. And then in the coin games, it's limited just to those two cards that you can see that really right the current one and the next one, the current one and the next one. That's all you can see, and that's I mean, in the grand scope of things, that's incredibly limiting to the players. But it's enough. But there's a it lot. Works. There's a lot to think about and a lot that can shift, and it's very dramatic mm-hmm. uh, because of that limitation. Yeah. And I think that's a, a small part. You know, these three points are why card-driven war games are so interesting and so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. All right, that's our podcast for today. I had a lot of fun on this one. 
I love these games. It was fun to talk about it. It was fun to sit down and kind of uh, break everything down into little pieces and try to real rebuild whatever thoughts I have about them back up, <laughs> which is something I love doing in my spare time about anything, but uh, even better with some great games. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. I love seeing new reviews on there. Even if you don't love it, that's fine. Give me your feedback. I love feedback. Check out thethoughtfulgamer.com. I think you're going to see some really cool stuff coming up in December and January. I've got a lot of exciting plans. Hit me up on Facebook and Twitter. I've been having a lot of fun this last week chatting with people on Twitter, even though I'm not particularly good at it. And if you enjoy this podcast or anything else we do, check out the Patreon page at Patreon slash The Thoughtful Gamer, where you can get cool bonuses such as watching this podcast live, of which we got, let's check it out, five of our Patreon subscriber people watching right now, making fun of us in the chat and asking questions. If you want to get in on that, what did I put as a minimum? Two bucks a month. That's nothing. Yeah, if you Help like what out. you do, if you, you like what we're doing and want to support us, throw a few shekels our way. <laughs> a few shekels? <laughs> it's not that much of, like, begging. It's kind of begging. I, I don't think I mentioned this on the podcast before. I put up an initial goal for the Patreon of $80 a month. Right now, I'm just under $50 a month. The $80 figure is my baseline cost to get me through 2018. So the cost of going to PAX East, the cost of hosting the podcast, of hosting the website, of some equipment, you some equipment that technically I've already purchased, but I calculated at the time, and the cost of the video editing software I'm going to be using very, very soon to do some awesome video stuff on YouTube. So if I can hit 80 bucks a month, I guess technically more since like a month has already passed, but whatever, that will help me basically strike even over the next year. And obviously more than that would be even better. But I would really like to get to that goal. So if you have two bucks a month lying around, toss it my way. Why not? And if you don't want to support us, listen anyways. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You're making this even more awkward than it already is, Ryan. I'm not trying to. The point is, if you want to support us, go to the Patreon. We've got the way you can do that. Please do so. That's great. It helps us out. If you don't want to, enjoy the content anyways. Yeah, you're We're doing an adult. it because we Just love it. Do what you want. Or maybe you're not an adult. I don't know. You may this be a is child. This a family-friendly podcast, is it not? Sure. I don't know if any children... If you're a child listening to us, hello. <laughs> now you've made it worse. <laughs> this is all disintegrated. Okay. You should edit all of this out. <laughs> no, I'm keeping it in. We'll do it live. <laughs> I have a question. Does Banana Grooms count as a card given war game? Matt, I hate you. You're not even part of this podcast. <laughs> podcast is over, everyone. Go home. Good night. Peace out. We'll talk to you later. Oh, man.